This is uh, The Conspiracy Guy. Senate hearings began today about Russian hacking and the FBI director's handling of Hillary's email case, where I listened to a fair amount of Dianne Feinstein, Amy Korbachev, uh, 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 others seeking to attack him for having talked about having to reopen Hillary's email case. He defended himself by explaining that since he'd made it a public announcement that the case was closed, he felt obligated to inform the public that it had been reopened with a discovery of an additional treasure trove of emails. Uh, he uh, said he uh, felt uh, nauseous about doing that. Well, I certainly felt nauseous listening to these members of the Senate uh, uh, castigate Russia for hacking, which did not take place, which they surely by now ought to know better, where the techniques that were being attributed to Russia of interfering in elections of other nations around the world pales into insignificance, not only because they haven't produced any evidence to substantiate it, but because since our first success in the 1953 of taking out the democratically elected government of Iran and replacing it with the tyrannical Shah, who endured his regime with a dreaded secret police until the popular uprising in 1979, when the people took control of the American embassy and held 44 hostages for some 444 days until the inauguration of Ronald Reagan, which was organized by William Casey, whom he there by made his director of the CIA, where most Americans simply overlook how frequently the CIA has conducted these operations, more than 80 coups to date. But you won't hear that from the Senate. Instead, you hear a lot of nonsense about Russian intervention. You even have Al Franken solemnly intoning that Russia preferred Trump because he had already been compromised by the Russians. Not only is this beyond belief, but we have Hillary continuing to go on television and give interviews saying, while she's taking responsibility for her loss, she believes misogyny, Russian interference, and questionable decisions by the FBI also influence the outcome indeed. It's very clear that that is her attitude. Where the story is getting out, here we have a nice piece from the Duran. New insider book reveals Hillary Clinton made up Russia's story to cover up lazy, pathetic election loss. New book reveals Hillary Clinton hatched the Russian hysteria to cover for her losing. A new insider tell-all book entitled Shattered, Hillary Clinton's doomed campaign reveals how Hillary Clinton completely concocted the Russian meddling fake news within 24 hours of her concession speech. The book by Jonathan Allen and Amy Parnes shows how a triggered Clinton blamed the, her election defeat on the FBI investigation into her private emails, Russian hacking, and Trump's supposed support from white nationalists via Shattered. On a phone call with a longtime friend a couple of days after the election, Hillary was much less accepting of her defeat. She put a fine point on the factor she believed cost her the presidency, the FBI Comey, the KGB, the old name for Russia's intelligence service, and the KKK, the support Trump got from white nationalists. I'm angry, Hillary told her friend, and exhausted after two brutal campaigns against Sanders and Trump. Hillary now had to explain the failure to friends in a seemingly endless round of phone calls. That was taking a toll on her already weary and grief-stricken soul, but mostly she was mad, mad that she'd lost and the country would have to endure a Trump presidency. 
But of course, there's nothing here acknowledging that she ran a miserable campaign, that even Michael Moore, an all-out flaming liberal, if ever there were one, declared that Hillary was going to lose the election because she ignored the white working class voters in the Rust Belt states of Pennsylvania, Ohio, Michigan, and Wisconsin, which is exactly how it played out. Continuing from the Duran, the authors detail how Clinton went out of her way to pass blame for a stunning loss on Comey in Russia. She wanted to make sure all these narratives get spun the right way, a longtime Clinton confident is quoted as saying. The book further highlights how Clinton's Russia blame game was a plan hatched by senior campaign staffers John Podest and Robbie Mook less than 24 hours after she conceded. That strategy had been set within 24 hours of her concession speech. Mook and Podesta assembled her communications team at the Brooklyn headquarters to engineer the case that the election wasn't entirely on the up and up. For a couple of hours, with Shake Shack containers littering the room, they went over the script they would pitch to the press and the public. Already, Russian hacking was a centerpiece of the argument. The Clinton camp settled on a two-pronged plan, pushing the press to cover how Russian hacking was a major unreported story of the campaign, overshadowed by the contents of stolen emails in Hillary's own private server in Broglio, while hammering the media for focusing so intently on the investigation into her email, which had created a cloud over her candidacy. The press botched the email story for 18 months. One person who was part of the strategy is quoted as saying, Comey obviously screwed us, but the press created this story. Uh, frankly, I don't see how Comey, by fulfilling his obligation to report to the press, the necessity to reopen the investigation was screwing the Clinton campaign. If she hadn't sent all those emails with all that devastating information, if they hadn't wound up on uh, Anthony Weiner's server, uh, wh which meant that it contained a whole mass of classified information on an unclassified server he was not entitled to possess, she wouldn't have found herself in this pickle. It's just one more in indication of the mass corruption of Hillary Clinton, her use of the Clinton Foundation, pay to play, uh, uh, and other sordid aspects of her campaign. Continuing from the Durant. The book also exposes how Hillary Clinton's frustration with then-President Obama, whom she apparently thought did not do enough to apprise the public that the Russians had gone way beyond what had been reported. She wondered why the president hadn't leaned harder into making the case that Vladimir Putin was specifically targeting her and trying to throw the election at Trump. The Russia stuff has really bothered her a lot, one of the aides said. She's sort of learning what the administration knew and when they knew it, and she's sort of quizzical about the whole thing. She can't quite sort out how all this played out the way that it did. On the long list of people, agencies, and international forces Hillary blamed for a loss, Obama had a spot. Breitbart has further noted that shattered authors Allen and Parnes provide polling numbers and other raw data that pinpoint the precise reason why Clinton lost. Hint. It's not Russia. Men and working-class Democrats in Pennsylvania turning to Trump and how he simply outperformed her with white voters in battleground Florida. Exit polls in Pennsylvania show that Clinton and Obama won women by 13-point margins in 2016 and 2012, respectively. But in a state that has never elected a woman governor or U.S. senator, men favored Trump by 17 points a massive increase over Mitt Romney's three-point edge in 2012. From a geographical perspective, Hillary did better than Obama in Philadelphia and its surrounding suburban counties, but lost working-class Democratic strongholds in Erie and Luzerne counties that Obama had carried. In Florida, Trump crushed Hillary in the suburban swing areas outside of Tampa and St. Petersburg. As he did nationally, Trump did better with white Floridians than Romney had, doubling up Clinton at 64% to 32. Romney had beaten Obama 61 to 37% among Florida whites. Well, we actually know how it happened. We know where the DNC emails came from. 
We know that Seth Rich, who was the IT guy for the DNC, became disillusioned over the sabotaging of Bernie Sanders' campaign, whereas many as 13 primaries that Bernie had legitimately won were given to Hillary instead. We know he gave that treasure trove to Craig Murray, an intel analyst, UK ambassador to Uzbekistan, head of a college and friend of Julian Assange, who published that. Uh, We also know that both Assange and Murray have asserted they know the source of the emails, that it was a leak, it wasn't a hack, and that the leaker uh, was not Russian. And indeed, you can see how it all played out for for his uh, act of super arrogation going beyond the call of duty. Seth Rich was shot multiple times in the back, uh, evidently in retaliation. The, the D.C. police, whose head appears to be entangled in Pizzagate, who's never investigated the common Comet Ping Pong Pizza, Besta, or any of that, covered it up by suggesting it had been a robbery, although he had his wallet, his credit cards, his money, and his watch. It was no robbery. And while Julian Assange will not identify specifically sources, he has indirectly confirmed that it was Seth Rich by offering a reward of $20,000 for information leading to the arrest and conviction of whoever was responsible for his death. Uh, We also know that John Brennan was recruited uh, to help to round out the claim of Russian hacking as a then director of the CIA which he appears to have pursued with enthusiasm, further impugning the integrity of our nation's intelligence agencies. The claim, as many are aware, that all 17 had confirmed that Russian hacking had taken place was always false. Uh, In fact, only the the big three, the FBI, uh, the CIA, and the NSA had made such an allegation which they really merely asserted as one they made with great confidence, meaning it was opinion. It wasn't a finding of fact. So we have that further disconcerting aspect. Now, in a situation like this, with the ongoing demonization of Russia and the absurd allegation that the Russians are responsible for interfering in the elections of other countries, when it's the United States itself, and our own CIA that are preeminent, Paul Craig Roberts has been forced to conclude that Washington plans to nuke Russia and China. Bear in mind, this is not coming from any man in the street. This is Paul Craig Roberts, whom I regard as our nation's leading public intellectual from one of his most recent blogs. Not everyone likes to hear about the threat of nuclear war, Some find refuge in denial and say that nuclear war is impossible because it makes no sense. Unfortunately, humankind has a long record of doing things that make no sense. In previous posts in recent years, I have pointed out both written documents and changes in U.S. war doctrine that indicate that Washington is preparing a preemptive nuclear attack on Russia and China. More recently, I have shown that Washington's demonization of Russia and President Putin, the incessant lies about Russian deeds and intentions, and the refusal of Washington to cooperate with Russia on any issue have convinced the Russian government that Washington is preparing the Western populations for an attack on Russia. It is obvious that China has come to the same conclusion. It is extremely dangerous to all mankind for Russia to convince two nuclear powers that Washington is preparing a preemptive nuclear strike against them. It is impossible to imagine a more reckless and irresponsible act. Yet this is precisely what Washington has done. Lieutenant General Viktor Poznikur, Deputy Head of Operations of the Russian General Staff, has concluded that Washington in pursuit of global hegemony is implementing an anti-ballistic missile system that Washington believes can prevent a Russian nuclear response to a U.S. preemptive attack. Careful studies have convinced the Russians that Washington is investing in 
in arranging components that have no other function than to devastate Russia and cripple the country's retaliatory capability. In short, Washington is preparing to launch a nuclear war. Here are some of the articles he cites in support. U.S. forces preparing sudden nuclear strike on Russia. Moscow Security Conference. Uh, Fort Russ News, Russvania, April 27th. Representatives of the Russian Armed Forces have stated that the U.S. is creating a military infrastructure near Russia's borders for the application of a sudden nuclear strike. This statement was made on April 26th. The first deputy chief of the main operations directorate, uh, Viktor Poznirhi, at the Moscow International Security Conference of the Russian Armed Forces. U.S. missile defense bases in Europe, ships with missile defense elements in the seas and oceans close to the territory of Russia, creates a powerful hidden impact component for the application of a surprise nuclear missile attack on the Russian Federation. Here's another. U.S. missile shield aims to cover sudden nuclear strike against Russia and uh, general staff. The United States is pursuing global strategic domination through developing anti-ballistic missile systems capable of a sudden disarming strike against Russia and China, according to the deputy head of operations of the Russian general staff. There is an obvious link between Russia's Washington's prompt global stripe initiative, which seeks capability to engage any targets anywhere in the world within one hour of the decision, and the deployment of missile launch systems in Europe and aboard naval vessels across the globe. The presence of U.S. missile uh, defense bases in Europe, missile defense vessels in seas and oceans close to Russia creates a powerful covert strike component for conducting a sudden nuclear missile strike against the Russian Federation. Now, all of that is profoundly disturbing. And in that context, you might think that a phone call from Vladimir Putin to Donald Trump would be big news. Well, it's made a few blips out there, but the reasons why it turns out to be highly disappointing from the Atlantic. On Tuesday afternoon after President Donald Trump and Russian President Vladimir Putin had their third phone call in about as many months, news emerged that the two leaders would finally meet this summer. For those tracking the Trump-Putin dance, it might seem just another date in a long love affair. The reality, however, looks far bleaker for Putin. Consider this. After three phone calls and an infinite amount of hope for a Trump-Putin detente dashed against the rocks of American politics, all that Trump and Putin could agree on, according to the readouts provided from each side, was that the war in Syria is bad and that maybe a personal meeting this summer would be good. But even that part about the meeting, it turned out, was just in the Kremlin's account of the presidential phone call. The White House made no mention of any agreement to meet. And even the Kremlin left room for uncertainty. After a description of a whole range of timely questions of cooperation between the two countries on the world stage, which according to the Kremlin account were Syria and Russia's perennial, cynical, used favorite counterterrorism, Vladimir Putin and Donald Trump spoke in favor of continuing contact by telephone, as well as in favor of organizing a personal meeting alongside the G20 summit in Hamburg on July 7th through 8th, which, given the White House silence on the meeting, sounds a lot less like a continuing bromance and a lot more like, call me and see you around. In Moscow, hope of Trump ushering in a new era of Russia-American harmony has evaporated with any remnants pulverized by the 59 Tomahawk missiles Trump fired on Syria, in lieu, as Commerce Secretary Wilbur Ross phrased it, of after-dinner entertainment. Trump, in the view of the Russian elite, has had his hands tied by the Russia hawks on both sides of the aisle, like Gulliver by Lilliputians, says Andrake McGranian, a professor of international relations in Moscow, as well as an old classmate, of Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov, said Igor Korochenko, the editor of Russia's National Defense Magazine, 
who has close ties to the Russian Defense Ministry. We don't like it, but we tell ourselves that the reason for the sudden change of politics is explained by his weakness inside the U.S. With all this pessimism, talk in Moscow even before the Syrian strikes have been of a last-ditch attempt to rescue what could have been a beautiful friendship. Russian officials are pushing for a meeting between Putin and Trump, one person with knowledge of the talks told me this spring. They don't have to agree on everything, but they think there could be chemistry between them. The idea was that this chemistry would reanimate Trump's admiration of Putin and hopefully put Russia and the U.S. back on course. Holding such a meeting was seen, according to the source, as urgent. My impression was that the one man who makes decisions in Russia wanted it to happen to sooner rather than later, and that waiting for the G20 in July was too long, and that Putin might meet Trump in Germany or Slovenia, that is, on relatively neutral ground. Uh, now, bear in mind, you know, the, the, the fact that uh, those cruise missiles were sent into Syria, even though they had given prior notification to Russia, uh, were based upon a fabricated attack, the claim that Assad had used chemical weapons when he no longer possessed any chemical weapons. In the wake of an earlier attack blamed on Assad, Russia had intervened with a 50-page dossier demonstrating that they, the, the chemical weapons had been used by the rebels, not by the Syrian government, and negotiated an agreement whereby Syria gave up all of its chemical weapons. They were removed under supervision of a UN agency, and it was thorough and documented and complete. So when the Donald responded with his cruise missile attack, he was either being played or deliberately deceiving the world because he had to know, unless he was being fed false information, which I by no means rule out, that in fact Assad had not been responsible. And here's the, here's the rub. At a single stroke, Donald Trump violated international law where Article 33 of the Geneva Conventions of 1949 specifically states that no person may be punished for a crime they did not deliberately uh, personally commit because of the actually 60 missiles launched, one went into the drink, 23 hit the, more or less the target but did no damage to the airfield, which was back in operation less than 24 hours later. The other 36... I surmise most were taken out by conventional EM weapons that the Russians didn't have to use their superior anti-ballistic missile systems, and others went on to hit various civilian populations in Syria, killing women and children, which is all the more ironic because Donald Trump uh, launched them in the claim that he wanted to protect innocent women and children in Syria from Assad but he failed to protect them from himself. Number two, and even more disconcerting, this attack was done in violation of the United Nations Charter, which specifies that there are only two conditions under which one nation may attack another. First, if it faces an imminent threat, and second, if it has been approved by the UN Security Council, and I would simply emphasize here that the fact that Paul Craig Roberts, who is extremely well-connected, is reported that Russia is now convinced that the United States is preparing for a preemptive attack means that even under the United Nations Charter, Russia would be entitled to make a first strike in accordance with that first provision that one nation may attack another when it confronts an imminent threat. This is a god-awful situation that Trump has created here. And, of course, number three, he violated the War Powers Compact, namely the agreement between the executive branch and the Congress that before uh, military action would be taken, that Congress would be consulted, where Rand Paul reminded him of the fact of the matter before he launched the cruise missiles, 
where nevertheless he was lauded by the American press, saying now he's become the president of the United States, which shows the absurdity, the irresponsibility of the American press. Instead of making the three crucial points I have just enumerated, they lauded him for violating international law, the, the United Nations Charter, and the War Powers Compact. Here's more about the content uh, from the Chicago Tribune. Five takeaway points. Syria. The White House readout of the call said Trump and Putin agreed suffering in Syria has gone on for far too long. Trump and Putin reportedly discussed establishing safe or de-escalation zones in the country to relieve the embattled civilian population. The White House also announced it would send a representative to the next round of Syrian peace talks in Antassa, Kazaristan this week. Uh, Russia, Iran, and Turkey sponsored the talks. The Kremlin readout says the emphasis of the talks was indeed on Russia and the United States working together in the fight with international terrorism in the context of the Syrian crisis. That sounds fine until you realize that most of the U.S. strikes have been against the infrastructure of Syria and intended to weaken his sought. Next, North Korea. The biggest geopolitical flashpoint in Trump's first 100 days, North Korea is stubbornly pursuing a nuclear weapons program and launching missile tests despite a new volley of ominous warnings from Trump. The Russian readout emphasizes that the Kremlin called for restraint and stressed the importance of a diplomatic solution. The White House readout referenced North Korea but with one line. Finally, they spoke about how best to resolve the very dangerous situation in North Korea. North Korea's main political lifeline to the outside world is China, although it maintains economic ties with Russia, which it listed as its friendliest ally earlier in the year. A face-to-face in July in Hamburg. The U.S. readout didn't mention this, but its Russian counterpart did. The two evidently agreed to continue chatting by phone, but also spoke of having a personal meeting around the G20 summit in Hamburg, Germany, to the disappointment of whoever was pinning hopes on those Russian reports that their first face-to-face meeting would take place in May. Fourth, what they didn't talk about, Ukraine. Ukraine was conspicuously absent from both the White House and Kremlin readouts of the call. Russia's incursion into East Ukraine and illegal annexation of Crimea, by the way, both being false reports. There was no illegal annexation. It was done in accordance with international law, a public referendum overwhelmingly supporting rejoining Russia, with which Ukraine and Crimea both have historic ties, which spurred U.S. and European sanctions against Moscow as a huge sore point in East-West relations. That the White House readout didn't mention Ukraine once could mean several things. Trump might see Syria and North Korea's bigger issues in the bilateral relationship or the administration, which has continually cast doubts on U.S. commitment to Ukraine, could be eager to sideline the issue so as to gain more cooperation from Moscow. Fifth, anything related to human rights, other seemingly big issues that were conspicuous by their absence, Russian electoral interference, the alleged abduction and killing of gay men in Chechnya, the crackdown on protests in St. Petersburg, in defense of gay rights, the right of freedom of assembly, and the crackdown on civil society. On these, the Trump administration appeared completely silent. But not to worry, German Chancellor Angela Merkel, eager to carry out the defense of Western values, that up until January was Washington's calling card, brought up all the above in her meeting with Putin in Sochi earlier on Tuesday. I just want to add, that all this business about a Russian electoral interference makes the United States look ridiculous in the eyes of the world. There was no Russian electoral interference and the endless uh, banging of war drums of demonizing Russia over non-existent hacking is not only a, a profound embarrassment but impugns the integrity of the American government. I'll be right back. This is The Conspiracy Guy. Did you know that 9-11 was an inside job and that Osama had nothing to do with it? That the Twin Towers were blown apart by a sophisticated arrangement of mini or micro nukes? That Building 7 collapsed seven hours later because of explosives planted in the building? That Barry Jennings was there and heard them go off and felt himself stepping over dead people? 
The U.S. Geological Survey conducted studies of dust gathered from 35 locations in lower Manhattan and found elements that would not have been there had this not been a nuclear event. Ironically, that means the government's own evidence contradicts the government's official position. 9-11 was brought to us compliments of the CIA, the neocons in the Department of Defense, and the Mossad. Don't let yourself be played. America nuked on 9-11. Available at moonrockbooks.com. That's moonrockbooks.com. In another development today, Trump met with a Palestinian leader, uh, Mahmoud Abbas, and wants a Middle East peace deal. Right. Donald Trump is convinced that the Middle East, Mideast should no longer be riven by violence and that peace is within reach. I want to see peace with Israel and the Palestinians, he told Reuters in an interview last week. There's no reason there's not peace between Israel and the Palestinians. None whatsoever. For decades, this goal has eluded world leaders, including Trump's predecessor, Barack Obama, that Trump has tasked his son-in-law, Jared Kushner, with negotiating peace, and longtime lawyer Jason Greenblatt to be his on-the-ground envoy are signs of the importance the president places on the issue. A possible step toward peace was his meeting with Palestinian Authority President Abbas on Wednesday. But according to Ghassan Khatib, a professor of political science at the Burzet University in the West Bank, Trump may be underestimating the task at hand. The main concern for Palestinians is to make him understand that there are two sides and that the second side is important. The second side is the Palestinian version of a long-running struggle that many, such as Cotbid Field Trump, may not possess, uh, of which Trump may not possess an in-depth knowledge. And of that, I have no doubt whatsoever. Uh, it, it, it's a treacherous situation because the Greater Israel Project is behind all of this, expanding Israel so it can dominate the entire region from the Tigris-Euphrates uh, to the Nile. Uh, this lay behind the effort to, you know, orchestrated events of 9-11, which appear to have originated in the fertile imagination of Bibi Netanyahu, in a conference held in Jerusalem in, in 1979, a book he published on terrorism, How the West Can Win in 1987, uh, which with the demise of the Soviet Union was picked up by the Project for a New American Century, most of whose members are dual U.S.-Israeli citizens, promoting the idea, which was a figment of the imagination, of course, that the United States could create a new American empire that would endure for the next 100 years if only it would move aggressively into the geopolitically sensitive region of the Middle East and exert military and diplomatic pressure outward. But of course, it was all just a fig leaf, just a cover story. They even uh, explain that the unique historical opportunity presented by the demise of the Soviet Union might slip through the fingers of the nation uh, if its citizens didn't wake up to the realization of the opportunity thereby afforded, which they suggested might therefore require some catalytic traumatizing event, such as a new Pearl Harbor, what they went about to arrange, and where Wesley Clark, of course, discovered the master plan, when he returned to the Pentagon from serving as commanding general Allied Forces, Supreme Commander Allied Forces Europe, which meant he was a commanding general of NATO, where he met a general at the Pentagon on two different occasions, first to discover we were going to invade Iraq, which led him to question why. I mean, they had nothing to do with 9-11, and the general said, I don't know, I guess it's just something we're good at. And then when he returned and asked whether we're still planning to attack Iraq, the general said, oh, no, sir, it's much worse, called him into his office and explained he had a memorandum from Secretary of Defense Rumsfeld to take out the governments of five countries in the next seven countries in the next five years, beginning with Iraq and Libya, ending with Syria and Iran. It hasn't played out that way fortuitously because of the intervention of Russia and Iran at the request of the Syrian government, but not for lack of trying. And it's just, uh, 
Here we have a report from, uh, from Bashir al-Assad. Trump is puppet of U.S. deep state and has no foreign policy of his own. U.S. President Donald Trump is not a truly independent political leader, but merely a puppet of U.S. corporations, military, and intelligence who serves their interests. Syrian President Bashir Assad told the Latin American Telesur TV network. Trump pursues no own policies, meaning no policies of his own, but only executes the decisions made by the intelligence agencies, the Pentagon, the big arms manufacturers, oil companies, and financial institutions, the Syrian leader said. Well, I think that's a pretty good, pretty accurate summing up. Continuing, as we've seen in the past few weeks, he changed his rhetoric completely and subjected himself to the terms of the deep American state or the deep American regime. He referred to the fact that Trump came to power on a political platform promising a departure from the interventionist policy of the previous U.S. President Barack Obama, but soon forgot his promises in order to missile strike against a Syrian air base following a chemical weapons incident in Syria's Idlib province. The Syrian president also said that it is, quote, a complete waste of time to make an assessment of the American president's foreign policy as he might say something, but what he really does depends on what these U.S. military and business institutions dictate to him. He also added that it is not new and has been ongoing American policy for decades. Quote, this is what characterizes American politicians. They lie on a daily basis. That's why we shouldn't believe what the Pentagon or any other American institution says because they say things which serve their policies, not things which reflect reality and the facts on the ground. He went on to say that the U.S. continues to pursue its age-long policy aimed at establishing and maintaining a global hegemony by turning all countries that oppose it into war zones. Quote, the U.S. Uh, seeks to control all the states of the world without exception. It does not accept allies, regardless of whether they are developed states as those in the Western Bloc or other states of the world, the Syrian leader explained. He also added that what is happening to Syria, to Korea, to Iran, to Russia, and maybe to Venezuela now aims at reimposing American hegemony on the world because they believe that this hegemony is under threat now, which consequently threatens the interests of American economic and political elites. Assad expressed similar views in an interview with Russia's Sputnik news agency about a week ago. Quote, the regime of the United States hasn't changed, he said, adding, since the collapse of the Soviet Union, the United States has been attacking different countries in different ways without taking into consideration the Security Council or the United Nations. He also said that for the U.S., the end justifies the means, no values, no morals at all. Uh, anything could happen. Uh, despite his criticism, Assad once again confirmed the readiness of the Syrian government to cooperate with the U.S. if it could change its attitude toward respecting other countries' sovereignty and that of Syria in particular. Another article, Can Russia Renounce Bashir al-Assad? After the chemical attack in Syria and the subsequent U.S. bombing of a Syrian military air base, Western countries, as well as several Middle Eastern nations, are calling on Russia to stop supporting Syrian President Bashir al-Assad. But Russian experts believe that Moscow will cease its support for Assad only in an extreme case. Indeed, undoubtedly, without any question, Putin is not going to abandon Assad. Here are some of the actions he has taken in response to the cruise missile attack. Russia has denounced the United States for its act of aggression and violation of international law at the United Nations. Uh, Russia has broken its compact with the United States, its agreement on cooperation, and has discontinued the phone line whereby the Russians had actually informed the United States in advance that this depot was going to be hit, which allowed for the contents of the depot, which appear to have been ordinary munitions and weapons, to be changed out with chemical supplies so that when the bomb was dropped on chemical supplies and they went off, it was alleged that the bomb that had been dropped had been a chemical bomb, which simply was not the case. Uh, I mean, it, it, it gets absurd. Russia has also 
strengthen its anti-aircraft batteries in, in Syria. Uh, and they are initiating the training of Syrians to use the S-300 and even the S-400, which are the best in the world. Uh, let me just say that, that Israel has made a couple of interventions into Syria. That must end. Uh, the United States flying over Syrian airspace. That must end. Turkey's attacks on the Kurds who are collaborating with the U.S. in attacking ISIS. That must end. I think the agenda, the agenda for, for, for uh, uh, Russia and Syria is uh, fairly obvious and straightforward. We also have the, the, the assessment of Donald Trump's first 100 days where two stories signal that he's no longer running the show. It strongly appears Trump is no longer in control of his own presidency. Either he's being lied to and deceived by his staff, or more likely there's been a deep state coup. As we all know, the Republicans' first budget under Trump literally hands everything to the Democrats. It explicitly bans any of the $1.1 trillion they're spending from going toward the wall, continues to fund Planned Parenthood as though Democrats were running the government. The excuse given is they want to pass an Obamacare replacement ASAP, but that's already falling apart. There's no reason they couldn't work on it despite a partial so-called government shutdown. In addition, the Democrats got everything because the Republicans wouldn't force them to vote against their budget and force them to shut the government down. October is closer to the midterm elections and the Republicans are going to be even less likely to make a stand on anything if they're already so cowardly now in May. This is extremely stupid, and yet Trump is not a stupid guy. He ran an amazing, highly calculated campaign, survived an onslaught from the media and establishment such as the world has never seen. That said, in early April, his entire demeanor changed, and he suddenly launched a strike on an empty airfield in Syria and started ditching all his campaign promises. Don't forget, Democratic Senator Chuck Schirmer uh, threatened Trump way back in July, telling him the intelligence community has six ways from Sunday of getting back at you. Now suddenly Trump's giving in to everything the establishment wants, saying he's both a nationalist and a globalist, and demurring about how he'll follow through on his agenda sometime later. And indeed, this is a, a stunning situation where he's declaring he's both a nationalist and, and a globalist, which of course makes no sense whatsoever. Uh, Craig uh, Fuller, who served eight years in former President Ronald Reagan's White House, said in an interview, the trouble here is I don't see how you get a course correction when there isn't a course. It's just erratic. You need to go look at the two factions within the White House and get rid of one of them. You can't operate that way in the White House. Mr. Trump dismissed talk about a split inside his White House between aides with a nationalist and those with a globalist orientation. Hey, I'm a nationalist and a globalist. He said, I'm both. And I'm the only one who makes the decision, believe me. One senior Toronto bank executive said Gary Cohen and Steve Munchen, former Goldman Sachs Group Incorporated executives now serving as chairman of the White House National Economic Council and as Treasury Secretary respond, respectively, have on a few occasions reached out to senior Canadian business officials in recent weeks counsel them that despite the internal Trump administration divides over trade policies, they expect no significant NAFTA changes. This is a disputatious White House. We have to understand this is going to split out, spill out into the public, the Canadian banker said. Atop of the pyramid is Mr. Trump, who in his 1987 book, The Art of the Deal, wrote he values flexibility above all, I never get too attached to one deal or one approach, he said. But think about it. He campaigned on the promise of ending wars in the Middle East, not initiating new ones. He campaigned on getting rid of the TPP and on revising the, the, the North American Free Trade Agreement. If he doesn't follow through on that, all those workers in the Rust Belt states of Pennsylvania, Ohio, Michigan, and Wisconsin who voted for him because they believed that was his agenda are going to be profoundly, profoundly disillusioned. Uh, this particular article continues, I'm pretty sure most people voted for a nationalist and not a globalist. That whole America First thing had real appeal. There are plenty of globalists like Jeb Bush and John Kasich running in the election. 
They did terribly. Hillary Clinton ran as an open borders free trade globalist. She lost. The Rust Belt voted for you because of your anti-free trade stance, which was totally unique and separated you from the rest of the pack. Not one person who voted for you would have voted for Gary, globalist Cohen, and Steve Munchen. Well said. Another development that has bothered me tremendously comes from Wayne Madsen, who in his Wayne Madsen report for April 28, 30th, states, Trump enabling Soros color revolutions in Macedonia and Serbia. Although candidate Donald Trump castigated the Hillary Clinton presidential campaign for its close ties to hedge fund multi-billionaire George Soros, President Trump is carrying out Soros-directed color revolutions in Macedonia and Serbia, two nations with friendly ties to Russia. Moreover, rather than drain the swamp of Soros operatives, Trump ensured that a former Soros employee, Steve Munchen, now serves as a Secretary of the Treasury. Publicly, Soros has called Trump a con man and a would-be dictator. Privately, what is occurring in Macedonia and Serbia is an attempt by Soros, working with Mike Pompeo's Central Intelligence Agency, to overthrow democratically elected governments in both countries and replace them uh, 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 pro-NATO and globalist or with pro-NATO and globalist-oriented puppet regimes of the United States and the European Union. This is extremely distressing. Here, another, an article from uh, Christopher Bolin previously bringing home some of the key issues that the war on terror is a massive Zionist fraud. Kudos for Christopher Bolin for refusing to let 9-11 slip down the memory hole and mass murderers go unpunished. In this article, Bolin traces the origins of the war on terror to the 1979 Jerusalem Conference where neocons plotted to use international terrorism to enlist the West to advance Zionist world domination. And of course, that's how it's played out. Here are some other recent stories that I find profoundly troubling. Russians' actions in Ukraine obstacle to relations, Secretary of State Tillerson. U.S. Secretary of State Rex Tillerson, in a phone conversation with Ukrainian President Petro Proshenko, said Moscow's actions in eastern Ukraine remain an obstacle to improved U.S.-Russian ties. President Secretary Tillerson phoned Ukrainian President Poroshenko today to discuss his recent trip to Moscow and his message to the Russian leadership that although the United States is interested in improving relations with Russia, Russia's actions in eastern Ukraine remain an obstacle. He added that Tillerson emphasized the importance of Ukraine's continued progress in reform and combating corruption, but that's ignoring that the overthrow of the democratically elected government of Ukraine, who was pro-Russia, was engineered by George Soros and Victoria Nuland, who spent some $5 billion of taxpayers' money, another $500 million from Soros, to, to rabble-rouse, to foment a, an apparent popular revolution, to drive him out of office, to install a puppet regime. Here's another story. Russia ready to send ground forces to Syria. El Hadath News quotes the sources as saying that Russia has announced that in case of the Syrian army's request, it is ready to send ground forces to Syria. The source said that special Russian forces are prepared to be deployed in regions which are experiencing the most pressures by the terrorist groups. They added that the technical aspects of the plan have been studied and prepared by Russia, saying the plan can be implemented upon Russian President Vladimir Putin's order after Damascus' official request. A Russian daily reported earlier this month that the country's soldiers are about to shoulder the responsibility of restoring security to the Christian-populated regions during the Syrian army's imminent anti-terrorism operation in northern Hama. Here's another. Trump denies Exxon permission to drill for oil in Russia. The Trump administration has denied Exxon uh, Exxon Mobil permission to bypass sanctions and drill for oil in Russia. In other words, this is reinforcing the role of sanctions, which were unwarranted in the beginning. Trump stops tax cuts based on his de-student misunderstanding of economics, the so-called Laffer curve. We've lived through this before. Tax cuts for corporations do not uh, produce uh, revenue enhancements from the economy. It's a guaranteed way to uh, underfund the government and increase massive deficits. Here's another report about it. Trump's tax plan looks like a plutocrat's dream. 
This is a, frankly shocking. It's tempting to dismiss the whole thing as a publicity stunt, but that would be a mistake. Although the nuts and bolts of Trump's tax plan remain unclear or unformed, leaks and public statements from administration officials this week have confirmed three key things about what he intends to do. One, Trump will propose a cut in the corporate tax income tax rate from 35% to 15 This will be combined with a mechanism to allow big corporations to repatriate taxable earnings currently being held abroad or pay an even lower rate. Two, the administration appears determined to overhaul the personal tax code, cutting the top rate and reducing the number of tax brackets. Despite recent arguments made against such measures from economists who advised Trump during the campaign. Third, there's a huge hole on the revenue side. Trump's advisors have reportedly rejected House Speaker Paul Ryan's proposal for a big new tax on imports, and they haven't yet settled on which, if any, of the loopholes in the tax code they will close. In the absence of any direct revenue enhancers, Trump's advisors are relying on faster economic growth to boost tax receipts and prevent the budget deficit from ballooning. On Monday, Treasury Secretary Munchen said the tax cutting plan would pay for itself. Been there, done that, doesn't work. U.S. regressing into a developing nation for most people, NIT professor warns in his new book, The Vanishing Middle Class. Peter Turnan, professor emeritus of economics at MIT, warns that the U.S. is moving backward and becoming more like a developing nation as the vanishing middle class has left behind a dual economy. We are still one country, but the stretch of incomes is fraying the unity of the nation, Turnin wrote in the introduction of the book, according to a copy obtained by Barnard College. The Economist describes a dual economy where the gap between the rich and poor has grown wider. Turnin points to a study from Pew Research Center, which he said shows the income shared share lost by the middle class has gone to people earning more than double the median income. In short, The rich get richer, the poor did not disappear, and the middle class shrank sharply. We are on our way to become a nation of the rich and the poor with only a few in the middle. I think that's 100% correct. Here's another absurdity coming from the Trump administration, which was also being echoed today during the hearings in Congress. U.S. authorities preparing charges against WikiLeaks' Julian Assange. You recall that even though President Trump literally said, oh, I love WikiLeaks on the campaign trail, CIA Director Mike Pompeo said in public remarks that WikiLeaks acts like a non-state hostile intelligence service. We were getting echoes of that from figures like Al Franken today, Lindsey Graham, and others who, who are hyping what is a perfectly uh, uh, legitimate uh, operation by Julian Assange and uh, WikiLeaks. Here, here's part of an article about it. Assange sought out secret information by setting up a private website for the anonymous transmission of information to him. Journalists asking sources to reveal secrets is the essence of journalism. The only thing that has changed is that online chats and digital submission system have replaced meeting over a cup of coffee in a P.O. box. Charging Julian Assange with conspiracy to commit espionage could be more accurately characterized as charging him with a conspiracy to commit journalism. Ellsberg, Trump's threats a WikiLeak, a nuclear option against the First Amendment. Statement by Daniel Ellsberg, Pentagon Papers whistleblower. Obama having opened the legal campaign against the press by going after the roots of investigative reporting on national security, the sources... Trump is going after the gatherers, gardeners themselves, and their bosses, publishers. To switch the metaphor, an indictment of Assange is a first use of the nuclear option against the First Amendment protection of a free press. By the way, the charges they are reportedly considering against him, conspiracy, theft, and violation of the Espionage Act, are exactly the charges I faced in 1971. If journalists and publishers fail to call out Call this out, denounce and resist it on the spurious grounds that Julian is not a real journalist like themselves. They're offering themselves up to Trump and Sessions for indictment and prosecution, which will eventually silence all but the heroes and heroines among them. This is just embarrassing beyond belief. We also have a report 
about a, a reporter by the name of Barrett Brown, an award-winning journalist who's been rearrested and taken into custody uh, Thursday, the day before he was scheduled to be interviewed by, for a PBS documentary. Uh, Brown quickly became a symbol of the attack on press freedom after he was arrested in 2012 for reporting uh, he did on the hacked emails of intelligence contracting firms. Brown wrote about hacked emails that showed the firm Stratfor spying on activists on behalf of corporations. Brown also helped uncover a proposal by intelligence contractors to hack and smear WikiLeaks defenders and progressive activists. Faced with the possibility of 100 years in prison, <clears throat> Brown pleaded guilty in 2014 to two charges related to obstruction of justice and threatening an FBI agent and was sentenced to five years and three months. In 2016, Brown won a National Magazine Award for his scathing and often hilarious columns in The Intercept, which focused on his life in prison. He was released in November. Jay Lederman, Brown's lawyer, told The Intercept Brown was arrested Thursday during a check-in. According to his mother, Brown had not missed a check-in or failed a drug test since he was released to a halfway house in November. Neither his mother nor lawyer has been informed about where he is being held. According to his mother, who spoke with Brown by phone after his arrest, Brown believes a reason for his rearrest was a failure to obtain permission to give interviews to media organizations. Several weeks ago, Brown was told by his check-in officer he needed to fill out permission forms before giving interviews. Since his release, Brown has given numerous interviews on camera and by phone, but according to his mother, Brown said that the Bureau of Prisons never informed him about a paperwork requirement. When he followed up with his check-in officer, he was given a different form, a liability form for media entering prisons. Just last week, Brown was interviewed for two days by Vice, and his PBS interview was set for Friday. Further explanation of what's going on here. Uh, issues are being raved about whether Donald Trump is America's first Jewish president. I wouldn't be surprised if Trump converted to Judaism halfway through his presidency. The shock to the nation would be profound. For the Jews, this would be the ultimate victory. A comment on the Lasha Dark Moon site. And here's a photograph of many of those in his, in his uh, cabinet, his closest advisors, Tep Wright, Ivanka, Trump's daughter, David E. Friedman, Trump's attorney for the last 15 years, president of the American Friends of Bet El, a West Bank settlement, has far-right pro-Israel ties and is a staunch supporter of illegal sentiment. Steve Munchen, uh, investment banker and hedge fund manager, worked for Goldman Sachs 17 years, one of Trump's oldest friends. Middle row, left to right, Jared Kushner, Trump's Jewish son-in-law and chief advisor. Jason Greenblatt, Trump's top advisor on Israel and Jewish affairs. <coughs> Orthodox Jew of Hungarian descent, takes orders from Jared Kushner, who is his immediate boss. Sheldon Adelson, casino mogul worth $32.2 billion. Fanatical Zionists gave Trump $125 million to win the 2016 election, Trump's biggest donor. Well, there's a lot to support it. Let me mention in passing, for example, Trump's first wife was Jewish, and that means that Ivanka, as the daughter of a Jewish mother, is Jewish herself, not merely a convert. And we know, of course, Jared Kushner, uh, a former a former IDF member who appears to me to actually be Mossad <coughs> and has been taking an extraordinary role here. Miles Mathis, independent investigator, published already back on June 6, 2016. Looks like Donald Trump is Jewish. As usual, this is just my opinion based on private research. Readers have been begging me <coughs> to do Trump, but I don't think this is what they expected or wanted. Many have been fooled by him. I really don't have much to say about this bozo actor except to say that he is one more test, has been one more test of the gullibility of the American public, a test they have failed. Even those who don't like him have been fooled into thinking he is a real person. He is about as real as Dudley Do-Right or Rocky the Flying Squirrel. This is Jim Fetzer, the conspiracy guy. Thank you all for listening.